Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in. This 20th episode of the Land Ethic features Preston McKelvey, co-owner of Wild Willow Outfitters, a hunting and fishing guide service here in the Roaring Fork Valley. I reached out to Preston about maybe doing a podcast and a hunt, and he offered to take me to one of his favorite spots to work with his young lab, Oak, who he was training. We had a blast and uh, got a few ducks down and had lots of good conversation, some of which is recorded. We, We talked about our duck hunt that morning, Wild Willow's guided trips, hunting with dogs, increased outdoor recreation on public lands, some of the conservation aspects of hunting, and a whole bunch more. Overall, just a great time with Preston, and I really look forward to doing more of this stuff to balance out the the formal virtual interviews. Check out their Instagram, at Wild Willow Outfitters. If you're in Colorado or planning a visit anytime soon, you can book a trip at wildwillowoutfitters.com. You will not regret it. These guys and gals are awesome, and they know what they're doing. Hope you enjoy this conversation. As usual, please consider leaving a positive review and sharing on social media. All that stuff really helps. Thanks. All right, I'm here with Preston McKelvey out in the middle of nowhere. What's up, man? How you doing? Thanks for having me. Thank you, dude. We had an awesome morning. Um, we went out and did some duck hunting in... Uh, Western Colorado, I guess, is all we can say. <laughs> That's all we can say. Yeah. Um, you know, hard spots. Good spots are hard to come by. So. Yeah, it was a good spot. We saw some action. We we had some shots. <laughs> we had some opportunities. I think it's fair to say neither one of us was shooting great. Um, we, we ended up with a couple birds down. Man, it was fun. You had your young dog out there. It was awesome. Yeah, it's all about getting outside and enjoying the outdoors. Um, yeah, Oak, Oak, my yellow lab is nine months and she's still got some figuring out to do and she did good today. I was impressed by her. She, she was well behaved and she retrieved the birds that needed retrieving and, and I couldn't be happier on that front and, yeah. um, beautiful morning weather couldn't have been better. And it's, uh, like I said, it's all about getting outside. Yeah. We were talking about, it, it was actually a little too comfortable, a little too warm, <laughs> but there were ducks flying. We had geese flying, uh, sandhill cranes over us. We had a beaver on the other side of the river. It was it was gorgeous. Um, well, I might as well introduce you, Preston McKelvey of Wild Willow Outfitters here in Aspen, Colorado, or really in the Roaring Fork Valley. You're serving all throughout the valley, right? Correct. Yeah, in Western Colorado in general, uh, we do a fair bit of traveling. Uh, our main focus is fly fishing during the summer and bird hunts during the fall and the winter. Within that, we do wade trips, float trips. And then we do wild grouse hunts. We do planted quail, pheasant, and chucker. And we also do waterfowl hunts, which you got to experience today. Yeah. Yeah, it was sweet. You guys have an awesome array of services. And um, you were telling me, we talked a lot this morning, had a long drive, and you were telling me that uh, the business has been really good, like during the pandemic and post-pandemic, a lot of people in the outdoors. Sure. And absolutely. And I think, I think COVID in general pushed a lot of people outside. 
anything from fly rods to RVs is sold out and back ordered. Yeah. And, and that helped fuel our success because restaurants and other tourist attractions in Aspen and, and the surrounding area were shut down during COVID and people were looking for an outdoor option. And, uh, and you're getting a lot of folks from the city, you know, L.A., New York, wherever it may be. They come out to Colorado and they want to experience, quote unquote, the Wild West. Uh, <laughs> so pulling the trigger, or throwing a fire rod for the first time, uh, you might, they might not be an avid outdoorsman and they might not continue it back home. Uh, but they're looking for that authentic outdoor experience. Yeah, I'm selfishly trying to meet more people like yourself uh, because coming off of a hard season, which you heard all about, but uh, my listeners may not have heard um, too much about it. I just, you know, the last couple of months I've had a bow in hand and a rifle in hand all over the place chasing elk and deer and have been coming up short. Um, just kind of steep learning curve out here in the West, new kind of legal system, new, you know, totally new style of backcountry hunting. So there's been a lot of, uh, disappointment. And so, uh, I really needed a win and you gave me one today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. But the most important thing is that you're out there giving it a shot and uh, you're brave enough to to experience those failures and that learning curve, and you're adamant enough to go back and try it again. Where most folks have one fail, and they're like, "Okay, this isn't for me." Yeah. And it takes a, many fails to get that win. I forgot how to use my damn shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. Uh, there, you know, but it, it makes those birds that we did get that much more rewarding. Yeah, yeah, we had one. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about what happened when we first got out there this morning. <laughs> uh, we Yeah, that duck, uh, I've never heard a duck quack so much in my life, and we both were convinced that was a dude on the other side of the river. Yeah. Uh, you know, I he would have had me fooled. I would have bet my paycheck that that was a dude just quacking away. And you do this for a living. We, we hiked out there in the dark and got to the water, and we just heard... <laughs> It just wouldn't stop, and we're like, "That's a dude." There's a guy in your spot, and uh, we waited there, and shooting light was coming up, and uh, it was a duck. He was just quacking himself hoarse. Yeah, he was losing his voice sitting <laughs> out there. <laughs> yeah, he was lonely, uh, just floating, floating down the river. So uh, sun came up, and we shot him. Shot him, and uh, he, I hit him, but didn't kill him. Wounded him, and he swam to the other side of the river and just hung up in the mud over there. Um, and the downside to having a young dog is she didn't quite have the confidence to, to cast all the way to the other side of the river. And, uh, the water was a little too deep and a little too fast for us to recover it. And it's, uh, it's an unfortunate deal. Um, but it does happen from time to time. Uh, but we try to minimize it as much as possible. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You were saying that's probably more common than most people realize. Well, I think so. It's, it's, you know, if you think of all the duck hunters in the country, and especially now with COVID, all the novice hunters that are that are out there, I would imagine that there's a lot of wounded and lost birds, uh, probably more than, than we suspect or we realize uh, on an individual basis. Yeah. Yeah, it's something I didn't really realize. And, like, being on the water, you know, without a dog seems impossible to me now. Like, I don't know. Yeah, just... I can't see retrieving birds 
uh, especially in water like that without without a good dog. So I was excited to watch Oak working. <laughs> and so was I. She did good today, and despite losing that one bird, uh, otherwise I was impressed by her. She was going after decoys a little bit. She was, and that's just her, her inexperience uh, and her puppy curiosity coming out. Um, but, you know, it's all a learning curve. You know, we go out there every day, and we learn something. Or, I, or theoretically, ideally, we're learning something every time we go out. The dog's no different. Every time she goes out, she learns something, her confidence builds, and this time next year, she'll be able to cast the other side of the river with full confidence and, <laughs> and uh, pick up pick up a bird in a similar situation that we had today. I look forward to seeing that. I've got a great video of her retrieving uh, one of the ducks today that I'll post um, with this episode. But uh, you've also got a German short hair pointer? Correct. For your upland stuff? Tell me about that. Uh, her name's Willow. She's four years old. She's the namesake behind the business. Uh, she was my first bird dog and has fueled my passion for for bird hunting and bird dogs in general. I grew up big game hunting and in my adult life got into bird dogs and have since given up big game hunting. Uh, for me, I've always had a passion passion for and an interest in working dogs, whether it's police dogs, herding dogs, search and rescue, in my case, bird dogs. Any, any dog with a job has always piqued my interest. Mm. Uh, so now that in my adult life, I, I only hunt birds just because I, I enjoy the dog work and I enjoy hanging out with my dogs on a daily basis. Yeah, I can respect that, man. I love, we've been talking about it. Like I, I, I love having my dog with me. Um, she's not trained, <laughs> but I'll bring her out in the woods and look for squirrels or something. And, and it's just like, it's such a, an ancient kind of, um, kind of instinct for her to just be like all right we're working we've got a task now like what am i what am i doing i don't know what i'm doing but i love it and uh i regret not not having trained her properly because now she's eight years old and i'm kind of like wanting to teach her this stuff i I think i am going to bring her out duck hunting with me and just see what she does sure and you know it starts we can talk about it more there's you can ease her into it you don't have to go zero to 100 and take her on an official duck hunt uh you know we got some birds today take her home, throw it for her in the yard, kind of pique her interest that way. If she's, And it's all about being motivated. You can train a dog to do anything, but if they want to work, it sure makes it a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, being a golden retriever, like she just is so attracted to the water and she's such a strong swimmer. Uh, the one thing that I mentioned earlier is that she is not gun trained. So um, that's the, the thing I need to work on. But uh, let's talk a little bit more about Wild Willow, man. Um, I'm so interested in outfitters it's like kind of a dream job in a lot of ways so i'm interested in how you got into this and um who you you mentioned earlier some mentors i kind of want to hear about like how you learned how to do this sure sure i mean you know i grew up in the out grew up in in western colorado and always had a passion for the outdoors uh had some folks in my childhood that were pretty influential in my hunting career mostly friends dads that got piqued my interest in it uh later in life i uh, had some family friends that i was real close to that especially got me into into bird hunting and uh guiding and worked for another outfitter in town for a few years and kind of got my my uh feet under me that way and just looking for you know the, the old saying if you can get your hobby to pay for itself or your passion to pay for itself you never work a day in your life and i think that's very true and that's that's kind of the lifestyle I'm trying to chase is getting paid to do what I love and have my hobby pay for itself. Uh, I envy that. I think it's 
I think it's awesome. I, I can't imagine like getting to go fishing and hunting and people paying you for it at the end. Uh, speaking of your, your fishing throughout most of, let, let's walk through your season. Like what's your breakdown of, you know, starting in, well, I guess you're fishing all year round, but, um, starting in the fall, like, w- you know, what kind of activities are you guys mainly doing throughout this season? So we'll just start from September 1st because that's when wild bird season kicks off. We do a wild grouse, which goes September 1st through about the middle of November. Uh, the same time, September 1st, we also start our planted bird program, which goes September 1st through roughly March 1st. Uh, we're hunting dusky grouse here in, in the Rocky Mountains. Um, you know, anywhere between eight and 12,000 feet, depending on, on the year and where they're deciding to hang out. Uh, and then we also do planted quail, pheasant, and chucker. Which quail species? Uh, Bob whites. Oh, really? All the way up here? Yeah. Well, they're planted birds. Yeah. They're farm raised. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so, okay. they're, so they're wherever I put them down. <laughs> you put them, yeah. And then you're going after, so that's September. September. Um, yeah, so wild wild grouse September first through about the middle of November. Planted birds September first through March first. We're also fishing year round, uh, and then our waterfowl season starts middle of October through roughly the middle of January, depending on where we're going. The season varies a little bit, but that's just a general breakdown. Uh, and then we get into winter, and you know our waterfowl and our planted bird season carries us through the winter as long as and as well as fly fishing. And we get bluebird winter skies, bluebird winter days out here, excuse me. And the fishing can be really great in the winter. Uh, it gets up to 50, 60 degrees in the middle part of the day. And uh, the fish are under less pressure, and the fishing can be really good in the winter, which I think is an overlooked activity sometimes. Most people aren't thinking snow in the mountains, let's go fly fishing. Uh, but it gives people a nice break from, from skiing. What kind of techniques are you using in the winter? The same, kind of run the same program year-round uh doing wade trips primarily not doing a lot of float trips in the winter um but nymphing a lot of nymphing in the winter nymphing okay yeah i was having success on the roaring fork as of like two weeks ago with um streamers and and dry flies and then it kind of and like blueing olives and stuff people don't care about this but um (laughs) it was great and then all of a sudden it kind of dried up and they're telling me i need to switch to nymphing which i'm not very well versed in and apparently don't know how to tie very well because I haven't had a lot of success with it. Sure. I mean, it's just a a learned art form, just like anything else is. Uh, And with a little practice, you can pick it up. Nice. Yeah, well, I'm hoping to do some more stuff with you. I mean, we um, obviously had fun today, but uh, you were just telling me about all the different things you guys are chasing, like ptarmigan birds above above the timberline up on 14,000-foot mountains and just all sorts of adventures so um you know anytime you need a, a pack mule or anything i'm your guy definitely yeah well <laughs> you know colorado's a state full of outdoor recreation and and uh lots of lots to offer and happy to get you out there whenever you have the availability oh thanks man uh so you grew up here and then you went to florida right <laughs> you mentioned that earlier what were you doing out there <laughs> trying to dodge a winner um uh, i uh not a huge fan of the winters, snow in particular. So I was just looking to get out of the snow, looking for a change. Went down to Florida, made it about a year, and realized uh made me appreciate the mountains a lot more. So I uh, came back for the other nine months of the year that Colorado has to offer. Was there any uh, new opportunities out there where you 
fishing a lot out there on the coast? I was fishing on the coast. I was fishing off the beach a lot, catching a lot of black tips off the beach, uh, doing some deep sea fishing. Uh, my goal, my primary goal when I was down there was to catch a, a, tarmi, or a tarpon on a fly rod and hooked up a couple times but was never able to land one. I've heard a lot of people mentioning that lately. Is that like kind of a, a white whale of uh, of angling? I, yeah, and they're just they're large, kind of prehistoric looking fish. And, <laughs> you know, it's it's always kind of cool to to put one put one in the boat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I don't have much experience um, ocean fishing, but um, had a great time last year in Costa Rica doing some tuna fishing. Um, off the coast there and it's something i just would love to do more of but um got to meet someone with a boat (laughs) (laughs) yeah pretty far away from any from any coast here but uh yeah texas like i know some people that that, uh growing up in texas that fish down there on the coast for uh redfish and stuff um but it's not something i ever really got into it's just like a whole new world and all sorts of new stuff to learn i just caught my first uh redfish on the fly and in June in South Carolina, and man, I'm hooked. Uh, I, I I can't wait to go back and no do it pun again. Intended. Yeah, <laughs> South Carolina, huh? I didn't know they were out there. Yep. Yeah, tidal fishing, just kind of a similar deal that you probably have in Texas. Nice. Um, so you grew up big game hunting, but wild willow. Uh, currently, you guys don't offer guided elk or deer hunts or anything like that. But you were mentioning that uh, that might be changing soon. Yeah, uh, I th- you know, hopefully that's coming in the next year or two. Uh, right now, like I said, we, we fly fish and, and we do bird hunts. Uh, in the future, we'd like to add elk, deer, bear, and uh, hopefully eventually mountain lions. And that's uh, in the next year or two, I would say. Yeah, we were talking about um, predators a little bit this morning, and and you were saying you've seen a whole handful of mountain lions in your days out here. I still haven't seen one in the wild. A lot of people spend their whole lives outdoors and, and don't see them. So yeah. I was just amazed to hear that you've seen, what, seven? Uh, seven, I believe. Uh, only three during the daylight. And then the rest are just driving home late at night. Just a flash of run, one running across the road in front of me. Um, yeah, they're, they're very elusive. And they're, they're kind of the ghost of the woods, if you will. We were kind of um, having a similar... We were, we were talking about how, like sometimes you just feel their presence like just this past weekend i was out looking for mule deer and i just felt like it was (laughs) liony and like (laughs) and i was right i found some some sign and it was just like man they could be there could be a cat anywhere right now (laughs) i would wager that there probably was uh you know they're plentiful especially in western colorado and in the i-70 corridor in particular uh and they're they're just spooky animals. They they say if you've never seen one, one's probably seen you, even if it's on like a just walking a main bike path trail. Or mm. um, they're very stealthy, and like I said, they're they're kind of eerie. Uh, once you see one, they kind of just stare into your soul. Uh, whereas a bear or any other predator kind of looks like at you like they're unsure of the situation. They're kind of checking you out. They're a little bit scared. But a mountain lion will just stare straight into you. <sighs> Yeah, I'm okay with not seeing one for a while. Uh, are you guys, if you do hunt them, are you going to use dogs? Yeah, um, I think going back to my fascination with working dogs, um, and it's, I, you know, I enjoy uh, all sorts of working dogs, including hounds, and and uh, we we would do it with a with a houndsman that we'd subcontract, 
And it's going back to the elusivity. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of a mountain lion, it's it's pretty dang near impossible to kill one without without hounds. Mm. Yeah, that's something that like, if you asked me a few years ago, I would have said I have no interest probably in hunting a lion or a bear, and um, I have to admit I'm, I'm I'm gaining interest, especially in bears. I'm seeing so many of them. And hearing how good they are to eat, um, that um, I'm I'm pretty interested. I got really close actually on a big um, bear in September. Thought it was a damn cow in the woods. Something was moving around, and and there was, had been a lot of cattle in that area way up high. And um, turned out to be a big black bear. And I was I was in bow range, but didn't have a shot. Um, but yeah, I just keep hearing how great the meat is. And like I said, they're everywhere. I'm not really worried about their population. So it's something that I've I've had a lot of gaining interest in lately. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. Uh, first of all, bears are everywhere. Um, but predator hunting in general is kind of controversial, and it's not for everybody, and I completely understand that, and I'm not trying to push an agenda. And especially hound hunting uh, definitely isn't for everybody. everybody. Um, but like I said, I just have a passion in working dogs in whatever form that comes in. Yeah, yeah, I could understand that. Would you hunt? Um, are you allowed to hunt bears with dogs here? Not in Colorado, no. Okay, yeah. There's a lot of we were talking about. Just there's so many rules here. Um, r- you know, rightfully so, and um, I'm glad there are. But it's hard to break into a new endeavor and like navigate all the different rules and make sure that you're not breaking any laws or anything. Yeah, anytime you go to a new state, is definitely hard to navigate anywhere from, you know, reading online to buying a license. Every state's different, and every state kind of has a learning curve as far as what you can and can't do and how to navigate the, the application process and the licensing, licensing process, um, but you'll get the hang of it. Do you think it's an impediment to new hunters or people who are looking to expand their where they're hunting and stuff, or do you think it's a good thing that like people are going out into the woods well-educated and stuff, like, or do you think it should be easier? more simple (laughs) Hmm, i think that's a hard question to answer um obviously you know rules and restrictions are great for both the hunting and the wildlife uh i don't think that government websites uh when it comes to hunting and fishing in any state are very easy to navigate and as a new hunter without a mentor just trying to figure it out on their own i think it can be challenging and you hate to see a new hunter who's trying to do the right thing misread or misunderstand something and not breaking a rule. And then it becomes a deterrent for a new hunter who's, who's trying to do the right thing and get out there and, and enjoy the resource like the rest of us. Yeah, and it's really convoluted when you're, you know, let's say you live on the border of uh, or you live within driving distance of another state. It's like, good luck. That's a whole nother. <laughs> I'm sure you're used to it, but to me, that's like uh, a huge obstacle to to think about. Oh, if I want to go hunt Utah next year, I got to start from scratch and learn all the Utah laws and like make sure I'm, you know. Um, so I don't know. It's it's something like I've embraced and I I understand um, that it's part of the pursuit and it's something I'm just gonna have to continue to to learn and probably make some mistakes, but. I could see how some people might de- be discouraged by that. Yeah, and your best resource is, if you don't understand something, uh, just call up the, the fishing game office and have somebody talk you through it. It's a lot easier than, 
and trying to navigate the the verbiage sometimes of of a government website. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, tell me about the guides that you have working for you. Uh, we didn't really talk about that, but uh, I know you've got a few different people who specialize in in different uh, pursuits. Are they locals? Most of them. Uh, all our fishing guides are local, at least local seasonally during the the summer uh, fishing months. Uh, I got some bird guys who have to travel a little ways. Uh, my main bird hunting guide comes from Denver, so it's a little bit of a haul for him, and it's probably not financially beneficial. Uh, but as a passionate bird dog uh, guy, he's just he's always eager to run his dogs and. And guiding bird hunts is you kind of getting paid to train your dog, and everybody loves having their dog out there and having the opportunity to to train in a real world situation, if you will. Yeah. What kind of dogs does he use? Uh, German short hair pointers. Okay. Yeah, you were kind of saying that there's some uh, elitism in the world <laughs> of uh, dog running. Yeah. So you were asking me today. You know, I got a short hair and I got a lab, and you were asking me if I'd have one of each for the rest of my bird hunting career. And I told you yes, but we went into this long-winded conversation about how the short hair guys look down on labs uh, for not being as elite in the Upland community. And that might be a fair statement, but, uh, you know, as we were talking this morning, I'm Upland and do waterfowl, and, and as much as I love my short hair, she doesn't get in the water. So that's why I have a lab to 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 pick up the slack in the in the waterfowl world. Yeah, you got an arsenal, and it sounds like you might have some hounds soon. Or did you say you're gonna you're gonna find someone who has? Their We're own? gonna subcontract it. I've bounced around the idea for a few years of having a a string of hounds, but man, that's a full time job. You know, you have six to eight hounds for a lion, and then you know I'll always have bird dogs. So now I'm looking at ten or so dogs, and that's that's a full time job in itself. That's a lot of dog food. Yeah, that's a lot of dog food. That's a that's a pack at that point. <laughs> yeah. Um. So what do you think, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of all over the place here. I got a lot of questions for you. What do you think has changed growing up here and being outdoors? What have you noticed? Um, it could be recently or just like throughout your time growing up here. Has there been a lot of change in the outdoors? I'm definitely seeing an increase in people and either you're running into more folks in the woods, um, which is great. Everybody's, you know, trying to trying to have their own slice of the pie. Um, I think with more people moving into Colorado and you're seeing more people in the woods, I think coming we'll see more restrictions and a lot of public access will be limited more like, you know, especially in the waterfowl community, you'll see a lot of reservation-only type setups um, where as when I was a kid, you know, you could pretty much go anywhere that was public and uh, you're seeing a lot more neighborhoods pop up when i was a kid anything driving up and down the valley any any neighborhood you see now i can almost remember when it was a working cattle ranch yeah so uh there are the urban environments spreading um but that's just that's just the sign of the sign of the times there's a few ranches around me that i'm like any day now that's gonna sell it's like right off the highway and i'm like that's gonna be developed unfortunately but the good news is we are kind of locked in here by national by you know protected lands and there's a lot of uh, lands that are under conservation easements, um, pretty high percentage in this in this area. So, um, you know, you can rest assured knowing that in perpetuity, at least there will always be access. But, um, you know, I, I, 
I can't imagine what it's like to grow up here and see those places turn into little uh, cookie cutter developments. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. And uh, yeah, you're as follow that up. Picking County has a great program. Uh, it's called Picking County Open Space, and they're buying as many ranches as they can, and they're letting folks stay on their ranch until they die and work it. Uh, and then once they die, it becomes open space, and it's open to the public, and it becomes it stays natural, and and uh, kind of holding on to that that uh, you know how it used to be. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the wildlife, have you seen big changes, like in any you know species population or behavior? Uh, maybe not so much in population. I've definitely seen a change in in behavior and changes in migratory paths, especially in elk and deer. Um, when I was in the, in the home I grew up as a child, elk used to migrate pretty much through the backyard wow now everything's been built up and i haven't seen an elk in that area in number of years um so i you know i think i think populations you know of, of people and neighborhoods and uh kind of change migratory routes a little bit um and they got they're just trying to survive so they got to pack uh pick the path of least resistance oh sure yeah yeah and it's like i was reading in the paper the other day that um you know they're they're trying to come up with a new uh, black bear management plan because they were just saying like with the expanding development, black bears are more and more encouraged to come down in the valley, you know, scavenge, and it's causing um, more conflicts than ever with people, you know, like people's mostly people's pets, and uh, sure. you know, take your dog out at night or whatever, and there's a bear in your yard. Um, there was a bear in my yard the other night. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it's yeah, it's a tough, tough deal. You know, we don't want our houses broken into, or our cars broken into. Uh, but on the other side of that coin is they were here first, and we're expanding into the woods. And I don't, I don't know. It's a tough, it's a tough question. I don't know what the right answer to that would be. Yeah, it seems to me that it's an animal that can, kind of like coyotes, can, can do really well on the fringes of human population, you know, where they can kind of come in scavenge and live off of the, the trash and stuff like that. So unfortunately it's like, they're kind of encouraged to, to be there. Absolutely. And I always joke, if you want to see a bear, just walk through Aspen at night. I see more bears in town than I do in the woods. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And there's still a lot of bears in the woods, but yeah, they're definitely, they're definitely not, they're, they're comfortable coexisting with people, I should say. The way people act around them kind of drives me crazy. Um, wildlife in general, you know, you see these videos and stuff circulating around, but um, people, especially when bears are, like, in town, I've seen them, you know, hung up in a tree and people are, like, standing right underneath them taking photos. And I'm like, dude, you're asking for trouble there, <laughs> you know? Well, everybody just wants to look cool on Instagram, right? Oh, so God. they want that one picture, you know, and if if you're traveling here, you live in a city your whole life, and now there's a bear in a tree. It's a pretty cool experience, and you don't understand where that threshold of, of uh, you know, comfort or distance should be. And, you know, nothing against the people who are taking the picture. It's just they don't know any better. And and it's a cool experience to to be be under a tree with a bear in, at the top. That's an empathetic point of view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were actually talking this morning about um, the, the things to watch out for in the woods, and I was telling you, like, 
I normally am most worried about moose, but uh, lately I've been more aware of black bears being a little aggressive sometimes. Yeah, I was, you know, I look at it from my dog's point of view. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that can kill your dogs in the woods, and I'm probably more sensitive about it than most folks are. Um, but anything from bears to moose to, you know, even a buck and rut can can kill your dog. Uh, and, mo- and most people don't have a great handle on their dogs, and most dogs chase wildlife, and it can create a uh, dangerous situation. Yeah, I've had a couple instances where I'm really glad that my dog is not uh, aggressive in that way because we've I run into a couple black bears with her in the woods, um, elk, all sorts of wildlife, and she just wags her tail. I'm like, thank God. <laughs> you know, if I back up, she backs up with me. And that's great. Uh, like I said, most most folks don't have the handle, and I've seen dogs chase livestock, chase wildlife, chase anything that moves. Yeah. I'm glad they're allowed to be here, though. I mean, we were talking, like, uh, you know, a lot of national parks and stuff, you're not even allowed to have your dogs with you, and it's like everyone here has a dog. Um, There's a lot of them in the woods. I'm sure it does impact wildlife, but um, I'm so glad because I can't imagine leaving leaving the dog at home to go out in the woods. And I agree. And going back to the reason I hunt birds is to hang out with my dogs. Um, So I'm glad that that, uh, Colorado is such a dog-friendly state. And then I can take my dogs most places in the woods, and there's not too many restrictions outside of seasonal closures for for uh, calving elk and deer and and uh, national parks. You were complaining. Speaking of uh, seasonal <laughs> seasonal closures, you were complaining about uh, the shed hunting stuff. Yeah, you know we live in a a state full of outdoor recreators, and I don't understand the reasoning behind limiting one group of recreators um you know they, they there's a seasonal closure for shed hunting between january and, and may shed uh antlers shed that antlers. is for the yeah. listeners yeah um but you can still walk into the same area ride a snowmobile ride a dirt bike ride a horse run your dogs shoot an ar-15 into a hillside uh but picking up an antler is detrimental to wildlife um and i'm sure there's there's good reasoning behind it uh, but it's it's just uh, something I don't understand as to why. Yeah, I think maybe when they, uh, I don't know, I, that's one thing. Have you seen that change in terms of the way that people are recreating out in the woods? Or It seems like there's a lot, whole lot of ATVs, machinery out in the woods these days. Is that new? I mean, I, there's always been that, especially in the hunting community. Okay. Um, but with the increase in people, there's an increase in outdoor recreators and in every area whether it's jogging mountain biking snowmobiling whatever horseback riding whatever it may be everything is increased uh in the woods yeah yeah that makes sense it's hard to think about like how how far reaching our impact is sometimes when you get out to um these backcountry spots and you hike all day and you don't see a single human you kind of get this false sense of like oh there's plenty of space but um, it's just not the case. We have such a a disturbing, uh, such a high level of disturbance, I should say, um, with the activities that we that we do in the woods. Sometimes I think. Yeah, and there's there's lots of space to go around, and I don't want to come off like I'm anti recreator. You no. know, I'm I'm an I'm an outdoor recreator. 
and uh, I'm 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 part of that statistic. Um, but there is an increase, and there's with more people. There's more people in the woods, and and uh, you know we always talk about like our our impact as humans on the environment, whether it's pollution or whatever it may be. And I think our presence in the woods uh, definitely has an impact as well. We both just looked up at the sound of a squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's just um, I'm sensitive to the the impact because, like, I just I go to these areas where we're just even if I don't see people, I can tell they've been there and we're tracking our scent all over the place, and and you can tell that it's affecting wildlife, and it's um, making them you know, causing them to, to retreat into areas that maybe they don't really want to be, um, difficult places to be. Um, that's my sense of it. And so I feel like, I don't know, I'm glad that there's so much space, but I also sometimes feel like, um, I wish we would give the woods a break. Like I was saying earlier, like with the long elk seasons and the year round recreation, um, it just seems like we're, we're really, really out there you know disturbing wildlife year-round and uh i I agree and i'm a big proponent of seasonal closures uh you know there's there's a handful of spots here locally that have seasonal closures in the spring uh to keep folks out of cabin areas in particular elk are coming off a hard winter now they're giving birth uh the elk need a break and uh i'm a huge proponent of of giving the woods a break uh it's you know you know hunting season doesn't go year-round uh, but our our impact and our presence can sometimes go year round. So I think a break is good. What about the fish? <laughs> I think, <laughs> you give them a break. <laughs> I think the fish need a break sometimes too. Yeah. Luckily, with the winters, there's not a you know most folks don't go fishing in the winter. Yeah. Um, and you know we had a tough year this year with heat and lack of water, and we had a a voluntary closure from noon to midnight which, you know, is great. Um, and most folks, I think, f- f- abide by those voluntary closures. Um, but I think, you know, just by the nature of the seasons, the fish get a little a more of a break than, than, say, wildlife do. Yeah, that's kind of the nice thing about the age we're living in. It's like that kind of information is disseminated pretty quickly um, and widely. If you're, let's say, in this Roaring Fork watershed, and, you know, there's one or two Instagram pages you can follow that'll tell you the river conditions and let you know um when those when those voluntary closures are going to affect or what the what the water temperature is like and you can make more informed decisions i feel like uh, you know how to treat the fish like I, I didn't fish late summer for that reason sure um low water hot water fish were stressed it was uh yeah it was tough agreed yeah um and i was i was real worried in june we were having unseasonably warm conditions, and I think one day we saw 105 in June, which is unheard of. And I was really concerned come August what the river was going to look like, and I was uh, worried that we were going to run out of water. Um, and despite the challenges that we did have, the fishing held on and the water held on, and it was ba- better than I had predicted in the early summer. Uh, but it was it was still tough on the fish on the fish and. And uh, fish are real sensitive when it comes to water temperature, you know, or trout, I should say, are real sensitive about water temperature. And anything above, you know, 60, 65 degrees, they start shutting down. And if we're yanking them out of the river every 20 minutes, uh, it's not helping the situation. Yeah, you could kill them even catch and releasing them, just exhausting them from a, from a fight for sure. Uh, when you talk about fly fishing, you're mostly t- catching 
stocked, uh, well, not stocked, but uh, wild reproducing, but originally stocked rainbows, browns, and then native cutthroats? Uh, there's definitely cutthroats in Colorado. Uh, on a guided trip, you're going to be fishing for uh, brown and rainbows uh, here on the Roaring Fork River. Um, if you want cutthroats, you got to go a little more off the beaten path, I would say. Yeah. How do you feel about that, about the uh, the non-native fish? I mean, they've been native for as long as I've been alive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and I know that they were introduced at one point, um, you know, but at this point they're, they're just such, uh, you know, they're probably more local than I am. Def- definitely more local than I am. Uh, so I don't really have a of a passionate stance one way or another on on the origin of rainbow trout being another very empathetic point of view (laughs) i disagree um no i see your point um but i i tend to really give preference to native fish or native native animals in in general like if i'm you know whatever area i'm in i feel like that's the fish that should be here and the other ones don't belong (laughs) i'm happy they're here i'm happy to catch them and um but i'm more likely to to take them home and eat them and put the cutthroats back sure um you know for me it's you know fishing the river's job security uh so so we put them back and um you know different strokes for different folks um but i i I just don't have a a strong opinion one way or another on on trout in particular Uh, i think there's a lot more invasive species that i'm more concerned about um but trout have been here for forever and they're 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 all around the world at this point yeah um which is great there's a healthy population we don't have to worry necessarily worry about them going extinct anytime soon yeah as long as um there are strongholds of of native population i mean i just i just hate to see um you know native populations shrink and shrink and shrink until they're just in a few headwater streams and uh they're they're barely around i feel like uh, we should give them a fighting chance just for the sake of genetic diversity and, um, you know. Anyways, but what are the, the invasive species that you were talking about? Carp? Uh, carp. Um, there's, a, there's like some mussels and cray, crayfish that are um, definitely haven't, that I've seen an increase in my lifetime. Um, and, you know, I don't, uh, I'm, I don't claim to be a, an expert on an invasive species, Um but you go to a reservoir and they're pretty thorough about checking your boat, making sure that you're not bringing in something from across state lines or even within the state. Are they uh, zebra mussels? Correct. Yeah. yeah, that seems to be a problem in a lot of places. Yeah, and I don't I don't know where they originated from, but I know they're they're expanding and uh, they pose a, a large a great threat to to natural species. Yeah. Yeah. You see billboards like uh, I remember in Texas seeing billboards that say, you know, stop the spread of zebra mussels, check your boat or whatever. Sure. Yeah. 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 And I, uh, it's funny. I just bought a boat the other day. Oh, yeah. And uh, it came, there was, it, I bought it out of state and there was a state inspection sticker that came on it and it said, don't move a mussel. Yeah. That's it was, good. It was talking about uh, invasive uh, mussels. That's really good. I heard somewhere that that reminds me that the uh, "Don't Mess with Texas" campaign was like one of the most successful anti-littering campaigns ever because they tapped into that like, you know, uh, state pride kind of attitude. Sure. Don't sure. mess with it. Just like that one little phrase 
uh, was so effective as a marketing campaign. I like Don't Move a Muscle, too. That's good. Yeah, and anything that's kind of catchy helps people remember it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what are your plans for this boat? What is it, first of all? Uh, it's a drift boat. It's uh, manufactured by Boulder Boat Works. Um, and my, obviously bought it for the business to guide fishing trips out of. Um, but on a personal level, uh, I really want to do a cast and blast, hunt some ducks and catch some fish all at the same time. Cast and blast. So, uh, yeah, we talked about maybe doing something like that. We were, I was confused at, um, you know, you're floating through areas that are developed up on the you know, up on the bank, there are, there are residential developments butting up against it, but you said it's not too much of a problem? I mean, obviously, gun safety is number one priority, especially being in a boat and having one more moving component to the situation. Um, you know, you definitely have to pick your shots. You have to be mindful of the direction you're shooting, and you also have to be a certain distance away from, from dwellings when you pull the trigger. Uh, and you also have to make sure that you can recover that bird and you, you got to make sure it lands somewhere that you don't have to get out of the boat. As we were talking uh, today, uh, in Colorado, the landowner owns the land that the water flows over. So you can't, you can float through it, but, you know, to hunt or fish, but you can't put an anchor down, you can't get out of the boat. So you just have to, you know, definitely be mindful of, of what you're doing. How do you feel about that law? I know not all states are like that, the uh, ownership to the bottom of the stream. Well, I you know if you look at it, one side of the coin is it's great for the landowner. Yeah, uh, you don't have folks tramping through your property. Uh, if you look at it from the recreator side, um, it definitely limits your access, and not everybody has a boat. And I spent most of my life without a boat, uh, and you have to pick and choose your spots as far as as far as fishing goes, and uh, it kind of it definitely limits you. Whereas a lot of Western states, as long as you're ten feet from the high water mark, you can walk up and down the river. Great for the fishing, not yeah. great for the landowner. I don't know. It depends on which side of the, the fence you stand on. <laughs> yeah, the uh, there's been a lot of talk about access, like, you know, public land access, landlocked BLM lands and stuff like that, and uh, opening up those places for people to be able to, you know, um, providing easements through pro- private property, allowing people to access all these, you know, several million acres of, of landlocked areas that we have in the U.S., but... Um, I've heard arguments against that as well. People saying like, look, we have plenty of access. Leave those places alone. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, from a personal standpoint, I'm a big proponent of, you know, easements and opening public lands. You know, it's called public lands because it belongs to the public. And if we can't access it, I feel like that's a problem. Um, you know, but then you put yourself in the position of the landowner and not everybody who's using that easement or accessing, you know, crossing that property is respectful of the private landowner. And there's issues with trespassing and conflicts and everything else. So I think we just need to, you know, the old saying, we all just need to get along. <laughs> uh, that's the only way it's all going to work and work cohesively. Uh, but it's, it's a tricky political deal to navigate and, I don't claim to be the guy who's going to come up with all the answers on that deal. Um, But I see both sides of the argument. Um, And I I can do that in most hunting and fishing um, topics is, you know, there's two sides to to every situation. And I can put myself in 
usually I can put myself in both sides shoes. That's a good quality. Um, I try to, I try to be nuanced, try to listen to more than one point of view, but there, there are very few things that I dig my heels on, (laughs) dig my heels in on, um, you know, yeah, I really can't think of anything where I'm just like ideologically set on, on one thing, but, um, there's so many different ideas bouncing around and it's hard to, hard to know who to listen to. But, uh, when it comes to the access, I, it is frustrating when you see like a big ranch that one or two ranches that surround a big piece of public land, BLM land or something. And you're like, okay, so those two people for all intents and purposes own that public land as well. Cause no one else can get on it. Yeah, correct. Um, and that's, you know, from, from a guy who doesn't own a big ranch, I'm like, yeah, let's open <laughs> it <yet>. up. Just, <laughs> just, uh, you know, have a, have an access trail that goes through it and open it up to the public. Cause at the end of the day, we all pay for it. We all own it and we all have an equal right to it. And there's some great programs out there that are, you know, trying to buy parcels or buy easements or work with the landowner and open up that access. Uh, but it's a long road to go, and there's still, I mean, I, there's like something like 6 million acres that are landlocked of wow. public land, um, which is a huge number. So. Nationwide or in Colorado? Nationwide. Okay, yeah, that makes I believe. sense. And don't quote me on that number. I just know it's many, many millions of acres. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been seeing that topic raised a lot lately, and I'm sure it's partly to do with just more people out in the woods. Sure. People want more more places to go. Sure. Uh, and then with that topic, I mean, you there's you hear about guys getting helicoptered into landlocked public areas. Um, what? Like, yeah, especially in Montana, there's one piece of landlocked uh, public land that is notorious for having people helicoptered in, and that's and I don't. It's it's a very complicated issue, but I don't know. How much would that run a guy if you want to get helicoptered into a spot? I mean, spot? I'm not in the helicopter business, but I assume it's not cheap. Maybe that should, should be the next uh, expansion of Wild Will Offers. <laughs> yeah. Helicopter guides. Man, that's wild. I didn't know about that. So we're talking about, you know, um, it's it's like a good elk habitat and people are paying a lot of money to get in well, there. Well, yeah, it's landlocked. So it's, you know, it's essentially private property, like you were saying. And so elk get little to no pressure in there and it's a safe place to hang out and if it's safe and you got food and water why leave so people are finding ways to to loopholes to get in there i can dig that i was telling you earlier i feel like i already need a uh more overland capable vehicle like uh i have a four-wheel drive jeep but um i'm like oh man i already need to upgrade to something that can get me a little further past the next guy, you like, know, like a four wheeler, and then you're just part of the problem. I know that I'm part of the problem. One of these See, that's assholes. Why I, I didn't want to knock you because we're all out there trying to trying to accomplish the same goal. For sure. Uh, so anything I say today isn't isn't targeted at anybody. No. We're all we're all trying to figure it out. Um, and you know, it's, it's going back to the topic of public land. It belongs to all of us, so we all have an equal right to be out there. Yeah, I feel extra sensitive about it being a, a newcomer, especially in a time like this when so many people are coming out to the west um i feel like i have to be very um i, I gotta treat the the resource very respectfully yeah just don't tell anybody from texas <laughs> i just changed my <laughs> license plates <laughs> yeah i've had that i've had that uh a whole lot of people going oh yeah a lot of you guys here <laughs> yeah uh you know we were talking my fiance is from texas and i love texans and they get a bad rap especially in the tourism industry um, but I think Texas are, Texans are great. You know, they're friendly. They're fun to hang out with. They tip well. 
I don't I don't understand why Tex- Texans get a bad rap, but uh, but they do in certain circles. There's just a bunch of us, and this is a community that has a lot of uh, connections to Texas, a lot of oil money, and you know, uh, Houston and Dallas families have property in this area, so um, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not leaving though. Sorry. <laughs> well, you're great. You're welcome back anytime. Hey, thanks. Let's uh, let's go back to hunting. I want to kind of tie this into uh, in summation. Tie this back into the land ethic, and I'm wondering your opinion on. Um, on hunters as conservationists. You hear that all the time. Hunting is conservation. Hunting, you know, it's like the main argument. Um, and I buy that to some degree, but I think it's a little more nuanced than that. Do you feel like hunters and hunting does a good job of um, supporting wildlife conservation? Yes, I do. Uh, and I think the average hunter has the well-being of wildlife and the future of wildlife and hunting opportunities um, in their best interest. Um, I think the question of conservation in general is a complicated answer because even though hunters and anglers are at the forefront of it, you know, I think it's a, we all have to play a part in it. And what the right answer to that is, I'm not quite sure. We're all still trying to figure it out. Uh, but yeah, I think I think state agencies and your average hunter and angler definitely has conservation and uh, the future and preserving the resource for for generations to come. Yeah, I tend to agree generally, but I also I know that like not everyone that goes out in the woods has those values in mind, and um, I have to kind of trust in the the system that I'm buying into in the the North American model and in the state agencies that you're talking about that they're doing good science and that the bag limits and the the seasonal closures and the things that we're talking about are in the best interest of uh of the future of of these lands you know I agree and you know tying this whole conversation together we started out talking about covid and, and pushing a bunch of people outside and you know when when we grew up we were taught by our grandfathers and it was, you know, family members or whoever our mentor was, these, these, um, ethics and, um, you know, how we, how we operate in, in the woods are kind of passed down from generations. And I think with COVID you get a lot of new hunters, new anglers outside and they just haven't been taught in the same way that we've been taught uh and you know it's great that they're out there and i'm not knocking it in any way uh but i think they're especially in the last year or two there is you're going to see more of a disconnect in uh the hunting and fishing community as far as uh maybe these these long life traditions of like how to operate and uh coexist with in 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 the woods is uh gonna be lacking a little bit yeah interesting yeah, I don't have much uh, of an informed perspective on that. Being a, a late onset hunter myself, I, I don't feel like maybe I'm not as connected to um, those traditions as yourself. I'm not sure. Yeah, and uh, but that's not to say you know any anything can be learned. I'm starting my own uh, my own traditions, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like it's something that uh, I like. I like meeting people like yourself and learning about. Um, not only 
the good spots to go, but uh, you know, like how to prepare the, the, you know, you were telling me recipes and stuff like that. I think it's the best way to learn, but like it, to some degree, I got to start my own traditions. I got to, I got to make stuff up. Uh, you know. Well, sure. But having a, having a foundation and a jumping off point, uh, just helps push you that much further, uh, in the right direction and helps you be successful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you got some plans coming up while uh, you're heading out this weekend for pheasant, huh? I am. I got a invitation from a good friend to go out for the Kansas pheasant opener. And, uh, so we're going to go out there on Saturday and Sunday and, and, uh, have a crack at it. I think, uh, you know, pheasant, pheasant hunt's fun and it's great. Uh, I'm usually only good for a trip or two a year, uh, growing <laughs> up in the mountains and chasing birds in the mountains going out to the plains doesn't strike the same enthusiasm uh that the mountains do but it's still fun to get out there and uh and take advantage of of everything that uh that we're fortunate enough to be a part of is it correct to assume that you're bringing willow the pointer and leaving oak the lab at home well i'm gonna bring them both uh <laughs> i'm probably not gonna run them together quite yet uh oak's got some some a little ways to go and she gets distracted with uh with willow there so she's a lot more successful on her own um but yeah i'm gonna bring both dogs and it'll be a learning experience for for oak and but it's it's willow's domain you know that's that's her uh her her division and and uh so she gets first priority as far as who's out there taking advantage of it yeah i could see that yeah oak is a sweetheart i haven't met willow yet but um oak is so cute and she uh she she picked up that duck earlier and dropped it when it was flapping. I was like, oh, she's just a sensitive dog. And it's, you know, still, you know, we're just getting into hunting season here. So the majority of her life has been either frozen birds or bumpers. So she's still getting getting a little used to the 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 flapping aspect. And, yeah. and uh, you know, it's a different texture, different different experience having that thing flapping around in your mouth. For sure, yeah. I bet it would be. I remember my golden retriever bit a uh, chicken one time, and it squawked, and she dropped it. And uh, <laughs> that's about the most aggressive I've ever seen her be. <laughs> um, but anyways, man, um, this is great. I know I kind of was rambling. I, I just was excited to meet you and talk to you. And um, can't thank you enough for this morning. We had a blast, saw some action, and uh, I definitely learned a few things, including that uh, I need to practice with my shotgun. <laughs> Well, it was a pleasure having you, and you're welcome back anytime. Thanks, Preston. Thank you.